Hello and welcome back to another episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Pete, MUFON Field Investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today happens to be our 30th episode. Um, it's been quite the journey and I thank everybody for uh, sticking around on this journey with me through all these shows. Um, so with that being said, we're going to move on to our big topic for today about the episode. We're going to be diving deep into the mystery airships from 1909 to 1913. And 1909 is when these mystery airships started popping up worldwide. So we're going to dive into a lot of cases from back in those days, um, a lot of information. So if you want to break out that pen and notepad, go ahead. And uh, without saying any more, strap on no seatbelts because we're going for a ride. All right, we're here. Episode 30. What a journey it has been. Um, it's been very exciting. I've learned a lot. Um, met a lot of people throughout this journey. Um, a lot of great guests that we've had on this show. And uh, I'm just looking forward to the future. And I hope you guys are too, because you guys take this journey with me every week, week in and week out. Um, and I try to bring the best content I can, and I'll continue to try to do that. And uh, we have some good guests up this month as well. We have um, Terry Loveless, and we also have Earl Gray. Um, so those are two guests that we're looking forward to. Um, in today's episode, where we're going to be talking about these mystery airships that really popped up worldwide um, in, in the year 1909. Um, and I chose 1909 between 1913 because there was just a lot of activity of like these major sightings and i mean up close and personal sightings where these people were seeing stuff um face to face with the the occupants of these aircraft um they seen these things up close and personal they could hear people talking on these craft as they were going by um there's tons of great cases i mean and it's it's really really interesting stuff here um but before we go into all of that i have a couple uh a little announcements to make um our show is officially sponsored by um, All Things UFO Facebook group. They were nice enough to help support us and, and, and advertise for us. And it's a great, great group to be a part of. Um, I've been a part of it for some time. And the person that runs it, the moderator, reached out to me. And what an amazing um, person she is. Um, great work she's doing over there. She's got a great group of people. Everybody looks out for each other, and she's always bringing the latest news and updates from around the UFO community. Um, so I, I highly, I highly recommend going over there and at least uh, following that group, All Things UFO um, Facebook group. Absolutely amazing. Um, also, um, uh, soon I will be a part of MUFON's ERT. Uh, which is our experiencer resource team. I did uh, a little piece on it in one of the episodes prior. Um, ERT stands for experiencer resource team. And what MUFON does through that, it's a, it's a specially uh, trained team to deal with people that are experiencers and abductees. Um, and it's not like a normal case where someone just reports a case. I mean, of course, they go in there and they put in a report um, saying, you know, they've been abducted or they've had experiences with ET. And one of the investigators gets a case and we deal with that person on a daily basis in an in day in day out and try to work with them for as long as we can until we can get them some some help or some you know feeling better about what's going on and it could take months um, and I'm looking forward to that because I have worked with experiencers before um, 
it's it's a it's a great feeling when you're helping the community and you're helping other people, um, especially in the UFO community, because these people are passionate, dedicated. Um, you know, they've gone. Some of them, like the experiencers and abductees, have gone through a whole lot, and they really need someone there to help them day in and day out. Um, even if it's just brightening their day up with some nice words to say. Um, but in the end, we want to try to find them some answers. Um, find out, you know, try to uh, cross examine different things to try to find answers. Um, even when we go over a case with a person over and over again, we, we find little things that we didn't hear about before, didn't know about before. And even the abductee themselves will be like, wow, I didn't even realize that. Um, if you didn't bring that up, I would have never thought of that. And those are the things that we try to do. Um, it's, it's, you're also being kind of a day in and day out friend in a way. Um, but we try to be there for the people. Um, that's what MUFON's main goal is. MUFON scientifically researching the UFO phenomenon to benefit humanity. And uh, the, the whole ERT is to benefit humanity and the people that are affected by this cause. And I'm really excited about joining. Um, I sent in all my information. Um, I gave my references. So I'm just waiting to hear back for the final word. And uh, hopefully I'll be uh, helping somebody out there that has been affected by this, this phenomenon. And I'm looking really forward to it. Um, and that goes along with me being a part, uh, a regular field investigator for MUFON, as well as a member of the SDU, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Um, so things are going well, and I'm also the director of the project, uh, Project BATTECH 404, investigating um, electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings. Um, and that's going well, as well too. Um, if you want to check out that project, you can go to um, projectbattech404.wordpress.com. And if you've had any kind of UFO sighting where you've had some kind of a techno technological experience, maybe your radio turned off or your vehicle shut down during a UFO sighting, you can report it to us and we'll investigate that. And uh, in the, the end goal is to try to uh, find out maybe if we could predict a UFO sighting right before it happens, um, find out what technology maybe they're using to cause these things to happen, batteries to drain, um, all kinds of stuff. But you can go over to the website and uh, read all about the project. Um, you go on the page two now, and you can actually we post cases that we've been working on through the case throughout the project. Um, so you can kind of follow it along because this is a public project. We want this is to benefit the whole the whole phenomenon and the community of everybody that's in the UFO field. Um, that's the end goal. Um, and we plan on finding those answers, writing a research paper of all of our findings at the end. And hopefully this will benefit um, the UFO field in some way or another, which I, I believe it will. Um, I personally had an experience, which is why I started the project, where my cell phone malfunctioned during a sighting. Um, and I write about that on my web, on UFO Encounters Worldwide website. Um, it's one of the blogs on there I just recently wrote. So you can check that out as well. Um, so a lot going on. Uh, I've been very busy. Um, but I'm happy to still do this every week. Um, and the other announcement is, uh, if you want, if you enjoy what we do here um, on the podcast and on the website and what we bring, um, you can now uh, help the show out. Um, you could donate or become a sponsor if you'd like to do that. Um, we really, uh, really rely on the listener support um, to move forward into the new year. Um, things need to, you know, I do this full-time volunteer. Um, I get no sponsorship through, you know, uh, commercials or anything like that. So this is full volunteer because I'm passionate about it and I like to do it. So if you could please help out and give us a donation, um, or sponsor us either, which way you like to hear it, say it. Um, and if you do so, we will, um, give you a shout out on the show. 
um, which we did have one person, uh, uh, one person donate and one become a sponsor so far. Um, and we did uh, give them a shout out on the show last week. And you'll also get a spot on the website underneath the sponsor section. So it shows that you, you, you gave to a good cause um, to help continue the show moving forward. We would really appreciate it. Um, you can go into the description of the episode below and you can see my PayPal. Um, so you could donate directly through there um, or it's on the website as well. Uh, UFO encounters worldwide.wordpress.com. Um, and we would really appreciate it. It will really help and go a long way. Um, so with that being said, we're going to move on to our fun fact of the day. So, this is a fun fact. I mean, also, if you're an investigator, this will help you in some ways. We always have and hear about cases that are Chinese lanterns or we always oh, suspect they're a Chinese lantern. And But sometimes everybody just assumes things before actually reading about what a Chinese lantern is or what it does or how long it lasts or what color it's supposed to glow. Well, these are just a little bit of pointers about Chinese lanterns. So in case you see one, you can describe it a little bit better and know if it's actually a Chinese lantern or just a regular shooting star or a planet. Now, these Chinese lanterns, they're, they're probably about, I would say, uh, they could be up to two feet tall. I mean, they're, they, they're a little wide, and they have a flame in them. Now, when they're fully up in the sky, it probably takes about to get fully heighted and blown in the wind about a minute or two. Um, and they only last generally about eight minutes. Um, so they don't last very long. Um, so you could kind of estimate the timing between it from starting on the ground to being in the sky and how far it's traveled. Um, they're anywhere from 12 to 24 inches in size, to give you the exact. And when you see them in the sky, they glow particularly yellow and white, which can kind of give off that gold aspect as well. Um, so you just, you, you know what you're looking at when you see that, those colors, uh, they could flicker. So if you see it and it's blowing and it's at full height and it kind of goes out, most likely if it was those colors, it's, it's a, a lantern, um, especially if you see multiple of them. When you have a sighting, when you see multiple different objects all glowing the same, moving in the same direction, um, and then as they start going out at different timings, they're most likely Chinese lanterns. And... Um, so you, so you know this stuff. So like I said, they're 12 to 24 inches in size. They glow really yellow or white, which can go, give off that gold accent. And they only last about eight minutes. So that's some Chinese lantern information for you, just in case you're ever out there and you happen to think you see one. Well, now you know what to look for. Pretty cool stuff. Um, I didn't know all that information. And it's always good to have that, especially if you're an investigator or a researcher. Um, or even if you're just walking about and you see stuff in the sky sometimes and you want to know how to describe it. Um, it it's neat. Always good stuff here. All right. Um, so I guess we'll hop into these mystery airships. So I started looking into this. I bought some new books recently. Um, I've, I've had a book prior to where I started hearing about these airships um, in the 19, early 1900s. And I'm like, what is this stuff about? Um, and this stuff predates Roswell. Um predates all the stuff where UFOs are assumed to have started. Um, so it did start way before that. It actually started in the 18, late 1800s. We started having sightings of UFOs. It goes that far back. But I figured I'd just start here at the 1900s during these mystery airships because these airship sightings were really up close and personal. I mean, these people were face to face with the occupants of these things multiple times. I mean, even had conversations with these people. And even when they were flying over somewhere going so slow at the time, they could hear the people or beings talking in these objects as they were going by. And you could hear the propulsion systems or, or engines that they were using back then. 
Um, it, it was a crazy time. Um, so I figured I would share with you some of these, well, the main time, time frame, which is 1909, when it was fully worldwide phenomenon. Um, so I figured I'd take you through 1909 up to 1913 with some cases that really stuck out, um, which are really interesting cases, the big ones that happened during those times. Really, really cool stuff. Um, so the first case we're going to start with is um, it's called the British Imperial uh, Scare Ships Mystery Craft in Northern and Southern Hemispheres. Um, and this happened in the United Kingdom and in New Zealand. And this happened from March to May and July and August in 1909. This is where it really kind of kicked off um, to become a worldwide thing. Um, the background of it, it says that there, there was phantom airships um, of the closing years of the 19th century uh, reappeared in 1909 um, in two early different parts of the world, which was the United Kingdom and New Zealand. Um, so there was multiple different um, events during this time. Um, in the United Kingdom and New Zealand in 1909. And um, in the UK, the first mystery airship or scare ship, as they say, um, as it has since become known, was seen in Peterborough, Peterborough, um, Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, by two police officers in different parts of the city. At 5.10 a.m. on March 23, 1909, a long oblong oblong body with a light attached passed overhead at speed making a steady buzz of a high-powered engine about six weeks long investigation a petersborough police spokesman claimed implausibly that the officers had seen an illuminated kite that's the first case that started and if you notice in the beginning of, of this sighting right here that they heard the sound of the engine now if you notice in today's sighting we really don't hear the propulsion systems systems at all there's no sounds but back then they actually heard whatever they were using to um run these ships which is really cool and of course they tried to say that these police officers were just looking at a kite but a kite doesn't make engine sounds just to remember that so another sighting the sighting began in in Ernest in early May being reported at first from over the southeast England from Northampton, um, Northamptonshire to South and Essex. The furthest north um, they were seen in May was Hall in Yorkshire. The furthest east was on the coast of Ip, Ip, Ipswich. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. It's I-P-S-W-I-C-H. Um, the furthest west was Belfast, Ireland. Um, there were numer numerous reports from widely separated locations at the same, on the same nights. Many of the craft reportedly carried out elaborate high-speed maneuvers. So these weren't just your normal blimp airships. These things were doing crazy maneuvers, and people were seeing them back then this, this, this early. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. Now, the most bizarre event during this time in 1909 in, in those two countries um, of the event in the UK wave was the encounter with the two main crew of a large airship by a Mr. Lanthbridge in Caffrey Mountain, South Wales. Uh, the meeting occurred at about 11 p.m. on the 18th of May on the top of the mountain. Um, on seeing Lethbridge, the men jabbered furiously at each other in a strange lingo. Um, leaped in the carriage, suspended from the craft, and flew off towards Cardiff, showing uh, showing the lights of the craft. 
Residents there said that they saw an airship pass overhead at about the same time. Later, ground markings and papers that referred the airships and the German army were found at the site. That's pretty, uh, so let's get that straight here. It's saying that they actually later on found ground markings and papers that referred to airships and the German army were found at the site. That's pretty interesting. Um, if you want to look that one up again. Um, so the next case the news, uh, in New Zealand from mid-July, residents in the Blue Mountains, South Island, repeatedly saw an airship that did not appear to be very long, but was very broad, flying in the daytime, as well as mysterious lights at night. On the 6th of August, um, Hitherto, uh, yeah, 10 Hitherto skeptical working men saw a cigar-shaped airship showing a powerful headlight. Now, the assessment of all these cases, neither Britain nor New Zealand um, possessed an airship at this time. So they were not responsible for these sightings whatsoever. Um, there were only three functioning Zeppelins in Germany at the time, and they were all at the experimental stage. Um, thus, the sightings must have either been hallucinations or what we now call UFOs, which is what I'm going to go with. There were similar reports about this time from um, Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, Revel, Russia, and New England, USA. Um, whatever they, they were, the mysterious airships became a worldwide phenomenon in that year of 1909. Um, so it's pretty incredible stuff there. And what I like about these sightings compared to today's sightings is that these sightings back in this time were much more, um, how can I say, they were, the descriptions of these objects and the beings in the objects were a lot better than what you get today. Normally, you just get a uh, fuzzy video today. Hey, it did this, it did that. I mean, look, just with those few cases I read that started in 1909, I mean, they, they heard the engines. They, they seen people talking. Um, they were speaking in different languages. Um, it, 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 the sounds from the ships, the different sizes of the ships, the descriptions of these things were seen purely um, without any... Uh, any any debris or anything in the way so uh very very sharp descriptions here so the next uh big set of uh sightings with these mystery airships was in the big apple in new york um it stated that long black object flies over manhattan um and this happened uh august 19 uh august 30th and 31st through 1910 so in January 1910, there were several daylight sightings on mystery um, dirigibles over Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Huntsville, Alabama. The New York events involved a UFO that took on the shape of a winged aircraft. Um, some, the event was a lone black object with red and green lights appeared low in the sky over Manhattan at about 8.45 p.m. on, on uh, August 30th and passed over Madison Square and around the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company building. Hundreds watched uh, as its uh, vague bulk took on the semblance of a biplane. The crash circled the Metropolitan building, its outlines standing out clear in the lights for many, for, from many windows. The UFO flew towards the Flareon building before returning to another lap on the Madison Square. It flew so low that it seemed to brush the tops of the trees. The next night, it returned at 9 p.m. and performed similar maneuvers. All over Manhattan were hundreds of witnesses to both episodes. 
Um, the assessment to this was in 1910, there were only 36 licensed pilots in the United States of America, and none of them were flying in New York on the nights in question. So obviously that, I mean, to, we only had so many aircraft back in those days. So to account for the ones that weren't there was much easier. So we knew this wasn't coming from, from us personally or those countries at the time of the sightings. So this would appear to be the first instant of what curious UFO-related phenomenon and the phantom craft, which have included flying boxcar-type planes and the mysterious helicopters, often associated with cattle mutilations. These craft are usually gray and black and unmarked, and the authorities invariably deny all knowledge of them. So it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, so before we go any further, uh, I think it's a good spot to take our break before we continue because we've got some other really good detailed cases coming up that I really want to talk about. And I don't want to run out of time for the first half. So before we go any further, let's take our break here. And when we come back, we're going to dive into UFOs of St. Cyril, uh, Lights in the Sky, Central Canada, USA, and Brazil. So hold on to your seatbelts. We'll be right back. All Things UFO Facebook group is now the official sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide. They are listeners every week to the show, and on their Facebook group, you can find all the newest content and news in the UFO field. That's exactly where I go every time I hear about something new that's going on in the community, and you should too. Again, that's All Things UFO Facebook group. Check them out today. Hey everyone, this is your host from UFO Encounters Worldwide. We have a new option now. You can sponsor and donate to help the show continue into the new year. There are new things that we need and equipment. And as you all know, I do this full time with no pay. And you could be a big help and help continue what we bring week in and week out with the new guests and the new content. Also the website that we hold with all the UFO phenomenon information by donating to our PayPal. You can go in the description of the episode below and that'll show you exactly how to do everything. And we appreciate all of our listeners for listening week in and week out. So if you can help, we really appreciate it. If not, that's okay. We still thank you for coming every week and listening to our show. Thank you everybody and have a wonderful rest of your show. Hey everyone, you know who it is, your host from UFO Encounters Worldwide, Jesse Peake. As you all know, I am a MUFON certified field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. If you ever have a UFO sighting and you want to get it investigated, go to MUFON.com and you can report your sighting or an encounter, and a field investigator will investigate your case absolutely free. This is what we do at MUFON. We're passionate, we're trained, and we're willing to help anybody that reports a case. So, again, if you want, if you have a UFO sighting and you want to report, go to MUFON.com today and a field investigator will investigate your case. And hey, who knows, you might even get me. Hey everyone, this is your host, Jesse Peake from UFO Encounters Worldwide. 
I'm here today to let everybody know about a new project that I started to help research the UFO phenomenon. It's called Project BatTech 404. It stands for Battery Technology, and 404 is an error code that you usually get with, tech, with technology or a cell phone, GPS, or any kind of tablet that you hold in your hand. So it's Project BatTech 404, and what we're investigating is electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. You can report your sighting or encounter at battech404researchmembers at gmail.com today, and one of our team members will get in contact with you and investigate your case. You can also go and check out our website today, which is Project battech404.wordpress.com. Again, that's projectbattech404.wordpress.com. You can go on there and see all of our goals of the entire project, what we plan to achieve, and all of our trained team members that are included in this research project. Again, it's Project Bat Tech 404, and we are researching electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. Check out the website today. Welcome back to the second half of episode 30, the epic 30th episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide. So, before the break, we were talking about the beginning of the uh, air mystery airship flap, which is pretty crazy, very detailed in these sighting uh, reports. Um, very interesting stuff. I, I highly recommend you go and check it out, but we have a couple more cases to go over. Uh, so, don't put away that stuff yet, and let's finish this story for what it is. Here we go. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. So back to the second half of the show. So we did start off um, where this this big phenomenon started out in 1909. And we've made our way through some of the years, 1910. And we're right around 1913. Um, So let's see what we got going on. Also, right before we get into that, I do have some uh, another announcement to make. Um, the SDU, which is which is what I'm a member of, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, is now starting to uh, recruit new investigators to help rep- uh, investigate UFO sightings that you can report through the SDU. Um, they're updating the system, or however they do it. So this is a whole new unit of investigators. Pretty neat stuff. Uh, we're looking for some of the big cases. Um, this way we can really look into them properly. Uh, we, we would prefer ones with evidence and um, good hard details if you have them. Um, you can go to explorescu.org and you can click on report a sighting. Um, if you also want to just report um, a normal regular sighting, even ones with uh, evidence as well, you can go to mufon.com and report a sighting there as well. Either which one, whatever floats your boat. Um, I belong to both, so uh, I support both. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's move on to these cases now and uh, finish this amazing epic 30th episode of UFO Encounters Off. So we're going back and we're starting at the UFOs of St. Cyril. Uh, this is a uh, mystery object cruises down the Americas. Lights in the sky, central Canada, USA, um, Cape Seo Racu, Raca, Racu, Brazil. Um, and this was February 9th, 1913. Um, the background to this is the UFOs in this event um, 
the UFOs in this event in Brazil have come to be known as uh, Cyrillids because the February 9th is the feast day of St. Cyril of Alexandria. That's a pretty neat fact right there. So the events for what they were, here they are. A series of fiery red and orange lights was seen traveling slowly at a low altitude on a roughly northwest to southeast course from central Canada. Down the USA to Cape Sayoriku in eastern Brazil, the lights maintained a constant formation throughout and flew parallel to the horizon across the evening sky. So you're talking about a, a, a really long sighting. I mean, and this is, this is corroborated all the way from Canada through the U.S., all the way down through to Brazil. Um, so they obviously uh, correlated all the different sighting reports and found out that this was the same object that went all the way down the coast. Um, and that, that's pretty good. Uh, to actually be able to link those together back in that time in 1913. Or, yeah, was that 1913? Well, yep, 1913 we're looking at. Um, so the assessment of this entire uh, sighting, the behavior of these objects is quite unlike that of meteors. The most widely accepted explanation for the Cyrillids uh, is that they were space debris that had been captured by the Earth's gravitational field and gradually burned up in the atmosphere. However... Some ufologists have proposed that these were the same as a group of UFOs seen the following night from Toronto, Canada, maneuvering over Lake Ontario, and that they were an extraterrestrial mission investigating the aftermath of the Tunguska explosion in Siberia. Um, few shared this belief, but obviously, uh, I, I mean, the government and you know, everybody else likes to just wipe this kind of stuff off and really to explain something that was uh, witnessed going from one country to another, three countries in all. Um, it's just hard to believe that all three of these countries seem one object that looked like space debris. Um, so I would kind of go on that it was an unidentified object, in my opinion. Um, so our next case that we do have here is the, the Wiltshire Shadows. Uh, triangular Objects and Invisible Light. Um, this is in Chisbury, Wiltshire, England on April 8th, 1912. Um, so this is in the Europe section. Um, all, you, all you listeners from the UK, this is one for you. So the background goes, Charles Tilden Smith reported the following case to the respected British science journal, Nature. The events, for over half an hour, Smith observed two fan-shaped or triangular heavy shadows cast onto clouds overhead. The clouds were moving rapidly, but the shadows remained stationary in the sky. From time to time, the unidentified apparitions varied in size. Smith concluded that two large unseen objects in the west were intercepted by sun rays. The assessment... If the sun had been the light source that the objects were intercepting, then the shadows would have moved higher on the clouds as the sun declined in the sky. But they did not. Therefore, they must have been a separate light, which Smith did not see, maintaining a consistent position in the sky. The changes in size were probably caused by shadows falling a different, uh, different angles in the cloud surfaces, which did not explain for the object's or the light source. So again, they tried to explain this one away. But there's too many details to say that, I mean, they, they, they admit that it, it couldn't have been the sunlight, but then again, they're trying to say that 
you know, it was just a, a different cloud surfaces making different uh, lighting effects. Come on now. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain something like that, that away. I mean, they do this all the time and, and we know this, but uh, it's a pretty cool sighting. Um, the next one we have here is a pretty big one. This is a series of events that happened over um, a long, pretty long period during this year. Uh, it's a two year thing here. Um, and this is the final airship scare. So this is kind of when um, it was kind of ending the 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 long phenom the long phenomena of the mystery airships. Um, this kind of ended the big phenomenon. Um, we still had sightings after this, but it, it wasn't as deep or as many. Um, so this is the final kind of chapter to our mystery airships here. So um, this is sightings over Britain on the eve of war. Um, United Kingdom, Belgium, Holland, France, and Germany. So all of these countries are involved in this case. And this is um, October 1912 through March of 1913. So this is uh, <laughs> it's a long period right here. This is uh, almost a year. So the background is political tensions in Europe immediately before the outbreak of World War I produced a rash of airship sightings over countries that felt threatened by German, German military might and eventually even in Germany itself. So one of the first events is the scare started with a this is how this began this whole this before the war. The scare started with a sighting of a large dark object making a strange buzzing sound that passed over Sureness, Kent, on the evening of October 12, 1912. Nearby was the East Church Naval Flying School. Reports of the incident led to a strengthening of air defenses. So, because it's so early in time, we really didn't have too much technology during World War One. So, to have these things flying like this, it, it kind of was like, okay, these could possibly be Germany because it's during, it's during wartime or right before it at that. Um, so they went and they strengthened up their defenses because of these sightings, not knowing if they're Germany or some kind of enemy. Um, pretty cool stuff. Now, the next sighting was the British wave began in earnest on January 4th, 1913, when three witnesses saw an airship showing a light approach from the sea at Dover and fly northeast as it was traveling at high speed despite a strong west wind. So this object was going against the wind back then. Um, there's not many things during that time that could fly against a, a strong wind like that without any kind of turbulence. Or you would see some kind of you know, maneuvers to, to be able to fly through something like that during that time in 1913. Um, so very strange. Um, and then the fact that it said... Uh, approach from the sea at Dover and then fly northeast. So it approached from the sea and then went to the northeast direction against the wind. And they could see the light showing from the object. That's pretty neat. And it was seen by three witnesses. Um, so our next case during this time is on January 17th at 4.45 p.m. Captain uh, L. Lindsay, chief constable of Glamorgshire, saw an airship flying over Cardiff, tra uh, trailing a dense volume of smoke and noted it was much bigger and faster than the locally built Willows airship. Half an hour later, Stephen Morgan saw a similar ship trailing smoke over Mirth. Mirth, uh, uh, yeah, Mirthrum, 30 miles away at very high speed for an airship of that era. 
So again, we talked about speed of these ships and how early, I mean, this is 1913, and to be able to go against, like I said, with the turbulence and the going against the wind, now you're talking about this ship making time going through different regions of a country as quick as it was within a half an hour, and, and we didn't have stuff that could fly that fast during that, that year. Um, so like they said, it was very, very strange uh, for the high speed of the airship of that era. Um, so the next one was in February. There were numerous sightings in Yorkshire. Um, and on the night of February 21st, lights and engines were seen over uh, Warwickshire in Norfolk. Um, could you imagine being during World War One, and you're seeing these lights in the sky that, that, that are unexplainable, moving faster than any aircraft that you know of. You're fighting an enemy. Um, and you've got war tensions going on. Do you imagine what it's like seeing these kind of things that are unexplainable? Uh, lights coming out of the sky, flying fast. That would scare you to death, um, especially during that time. Um, your warners are already up enough. And to see objects making maneuvers like this is just, it's mind-blowing. Um, so the next one we have here is Belgium and Holland had their... Uh, first airship sighting in February 1913, and in France, France, German airships were reputedly spying on the eastern border. So, Germany did have these airships. Um, like I said, so imagine you're war nerves, you, you're, you see these German warships spying on you, and then you're seeing these other lights, and you're thinking they're Germans as well. Um, it's just, it, it really would get your, your nerves up. Um, the next sighting was on March 4th. Sightings began in Germany. An airship visited uh, Tarnowitz, Prussia, while at Lake uh, Schwillow, there was a foretaste of the U a crashed UFO syndrome when a burning airship was seen to crash in the nearby forest. But after extensive searches, no wreckage was found. So that's that's pretty crazy to go and see something. Uh, fall to the ground like that and then not be able to find anything. Um, we all know that we like the, the more recent stuff like the Kecksburg in Pennsylvania, the uh, whatever was flying, we've seen crash into the woods and there was actual debris and stuff that was taken out. Same thing with Roswell um, and the debris field. But to see something like this and to be able to mark it and then go and check that area and not find nothing, that's very, uh, very uh, weird. Um, so the assessment on all of these sightings that happened during this uh, wartime, um, many of the 1913 sightings may have been due to misidentifications fueled by fear of war. That's just like what I talked about. You're seeing these lights, you know that Germany has these airships, and you're fighting an enemy that you really don't have nothing flying in the sky. So these, you're, you're, you're on nerves and you're seeing stuff a little more. You're not describing things as clearly. It happens. Um, others are less easily dismissed. Uh, the British cases are not to be attributed to the few known airships in the country at the time. And most Zeppelins were in regular commercial service and there were, and their whereabouts were known. Um, so the ones that were flying, they did know about. So these unidentified ones are truly unknown. Um, the reported speeds of the 1913 airships were between 60 miles per hour. Um, yeah, and also far higher than those known to be operating. So that's pretty fast for, um, that time. Um, the true origin of the 1913 wave remains a mystery. 
Um, this, and that's the end of that. Um, so you're not only getting with all these different cases, these, these mystery airships, you're getting regular local people like your mom and dad, your brother, sister, aunt, your best friends sitting at their, their, you know, back in say 1909, sitting out front of their house or, and back then there was single homes, you had land and you look out back and you see these crazy, this crazy airship landing in your backyard and you go and you were able to talk to them and make communication with these things and then see them fly off at speeds that you had no idea about. And, and like they said, during this time, there was only so many Zeppelins in operation and most of them uh, before 1912 were just at the, in their experimental stages. Um, so imagine that happening to you where today we really don't get sightings like that. They're very rare, um, but this happened a lot back then. And it's not only regular people, then you're moving on to the police force. Um, you have credible witnesses seeing these things, describing them, reporting them over the, uh, uh, to their, you know, their higher ups and people coming out and trying to see these things. Um, there's records of them. Police officers wrote um, reports up about them. And then during the war, the war in 1913, World War I, you got British soldiers in the trenches seeing these objects. Um, but it, the thing is, at the same time, they're watching these German Zeppelins spying on them uh, from the border. And then at the same time, they're having these other other craft they're seeing flying around with them, thinking that they're Germany. And Germany's seeing these other things flying, and they're, they're not knowing who's flying at them. So it had both sides all whacked out at the same time during the war, which is <laughs> it's just a hectic time. Um, but that's it for, for these mysterious airship sightings. I mean, they're really good. Um, if you really, you can go and you can look up. Um, there's a couple different websites that have information on this stuff. Um, I'm a big book guy, so I, I prefer reading, getting my information from uh, good authors. And, and that's how I get my information, a lot of it, that I share with you guys on here. Um, I'm a big fan. I like to read books and get my my stuff from there. It's just uh, how I've always been. I like having something in my hand to read and then be able to always go back and reference it. Um, so those are really pretty cool cases. Um, enjoyed that today. Um, I know when I first read about these airship mysteries, it, it opened my eyes up in a whole new way of looking at the UFO phenomenon because today, like I said, we get the blurry pictures. Um, we get landing traces sometimes, very rare. Um, and uh, we, we, we get these crashes um, that happen super rare when we think the military hasn't. Back then, I mean, they were landing everywhere in front of everybody. I mean, it's too bad we didn't have uh, recording news people out there on the scene to be able to record these things sometimes. Um, I can imagine if we had the technology we had today and had those things landing, you know, it'd be, it'd be, we'd have so much evidence, it'd be insane. Um, so really cool stuff. Um, so again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to today. Um, it's our big Epic 30th episode. Uh, we've come a long way with this journey and, uh, I'm, I'm having a great time doing this. I love it. I'm passionate about the subject. You guys know that already. Um, and I want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every week with me. You guys support the show. Um, if you can, um, and you're already supporting by listening. So I really do appreciate it. Um, and uh, I think that's just about it for today's episode. And please, uh, don't hesitate to go over and check out all things UFO Facebook group. They are the official sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide. Um, they help sponsor us all throughout Facebook, social media, and their group. Um, they have amazing content over there. I mean, 
really. Um, the moderators are over there. They put up all the latest stuff. So, you, I mean, if something happens, you're going to hear about it there first. So definitely check that out. That's All Things UFO Facebook group. Also, if you have any cases for Project Bat Tech um, where you've had a UFO sighting and some kind of electrical phenomenon has occurred during your sighting, please report it to us. Um, you can go to projectbattech404.wordpress.com and you can report it and one of our team members will reach out to you to investigate your case. Um, and also, if you want to help support the show and you enjoy what we do week in and week out, um, you can help donate or sponsor us. The, the information is in the link in the description of the episode, or you can go right on our website and get that information as well. We appreciate anything you can give. It will really help to continue to keep the show going to the new year. Um, so with that said, I thank everybody for tuning in today for our epic 30th episode. And next week we will be back with our famous guest, the one and only Terry Loveless. So that'll be a great, great time. Well, that's it for our epic 30th episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide. And if you would like to support our show, you can become a sponsor or donate to our show with our PayPal in the description below. Every bit will help get us through to the new year. Since we are fully volunteered, it will help. Please think about donating or becoming a sponsor today. It will earn you a shout out on the show and a place on the website under the sponsor section. And next week, we'll be back with a special guest, Terry Loveless, the one and only. That should be an amazing show. So until then, remember to keep your eyes in the sky.